Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're all very well indeed. Uh, we're going to be continuing our look at the impact of COVID-19 on the sports industry today with a focus on startups and the evolving picture for them. And I'm very happy to have with me to talk about that, Sports Pro Editorial Director Michael Long. Hi, Mike. Hello, Owen. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Thanks, Mike. How are you? I'm very well. Very well indeed. Glad to hear it. Uh, and we also have Charlie Greenwood, the founder of Sports Loft. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Owen. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Good. Good, thanks. So, Charlie, you represent Sportsloft, which is a curated group uh, of startups founded towards the end of last year in London. Um, we're also going to be hearing a bit later on from Tal Brown, who's the chief executive and founder of a startup called Zone 7, about his experiences over the last couple of months. Before we dive into all of that, a quick reminder uh, about the Sports Pro Insider series, which we've been uh, very pleased to see has uh, has got a lot of traction uh, among our audience in the last few weeks. Um, hope you've been enjoying all of those and finding them useful. Uh, we will be back with a virtual event on sponsorship uh, next Wednesday and Thursday. That's the 27th and 28th of May. Um, fantastic lineup of speakers coming together for that one from Budweiser, Coca-Cola, Ascot, BMW, Philadelphia 76ers, uh, the WWE, and many more. Some big brands there, uh, some rather smaller companies on the agenda today. And Charlie, I mean, these are, to say these are difficult times in the sports industry and in the wider economy would be a, a bit of an understatement. How difficult a period is this to be a startup? And is it a difficult period to be a startup? Are there going to be some who are going to be spotting an opportunity to make an impact? Oh, yeah, I think it's not ideal by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think there are some startups that will come out of this very nicely um, and some who may may pivot, which is a horrendous startup term, uh, but may pivot into some different uh, product offerings that actually they may come out of it very well uh, as well. I mean, it's not massively unsurprising about the sort of companies, if you take them at a much higher level who are doing really well. See so companies like Zoom, uh, Peloton, Amazon, you know, surprisingly enough, the tech companies where you don't really need as much of a physical footprint are doing quite well at the moment. So there are a lot of opportunities that are out there. Having said that, you know, it's hard enough running a, a startup as it's at the best of times. Uh, anybody that's done it will probably have quite a few more grey hairs and sleepless nights than those who haven't. But it makes it even harder when you're trying to do it in the middle of a pandemic and probably even harder after that if you're trying to do it in an industry which is pretty well closed down. So it's not uh, ideal in that sense. And, you know, there's some companies it's really hard for. I mean, if you look at some of our members at Sportsloft, you know, you've got one like uh, Profit, which is a, a gambling startup. The reality is there's nothing to gamble on. So actually, in their case, how do you take the opportunity to reevaluate things, maybe focus on product development that you didn't have the time to go and do before um, and try and move things forward. But then there's others, like somebody like Spolk, which is all about remote production, who, you know, their technology is exactly what's needed by a lot of broadcasters in this environment. So it does swing in roundabouts a little bit. Yeah, one of the things that's, I mean, it's been, that there hasn't been a, a, a playbook really for anybody um, in the last couple of months, but I guess most organizations would want to know going into something like this, where there's not going to be any activity for such a long time, that they've got cash reserves, that they've got alternative sources of income. When you're a startup, your books might be a little bit on the eccentric side, shall we say, um, you know, as you're just trying to get things up and running and, uh, and, and, and try and get your products out there and just make things happen. Is there anything you can do or is there anything that some of the companies you've worked with will have done to to try and prepare themselves for the worst. I like the description of books being on the eccentric side. Um, <laughs> I might use that again, actually. I mean, the reality is that uh, many startups, especially at the earlier stage, are even in good times, you know, 
have a finite amount of runway, which is basically the amount of months that they've got left at their current cash burn in order to keep going. Um, if you don't think that you can then do subsequent funding rounds to keep replenishing that runway, that makes uh, it a little bit um, squeaky bum time. I think the immediate thought when lockdown really started to kick in, especially in the UK and the US, was, oh, all the investors, it's just going to dry up. That's it. And there were certainly some investors who are are pulling back, but by no means all. I mean, ultimately, if you've already raised a fund and you've got to deploy capital, you know, that money is still there to be deployed. You might look at things with a different eye on valuation. You might think, actually, I'm more interested in certain types of companies in the current environment than others. Uh, so something that's a lot more virtual is probably a lot more appealing than something that's got a heavy reliance on sort of the physical environment. But there are still people who will be investing. Um, and there are some who will think that there's a great opportunity now to potentially even get a few bargains as well. I think where you do see the sort of the, the drying up a little bit is lots of people who were running around over the last 12, 18 months going, oh, hey, we're going to raise a $25 million, $50 million um, sports tech fund. Can um, And literally, I must have seen pretty well one every month for about the last year, people doing that. Surprisingly enough, those people are not uh, actively doing much because a lot of it was... You know, it wasn't necessarily all uh, set up and ready to go. Mm. Um, so setting up those things now, I think, gets gets harder. You know, you look at some of the startups that are there, virtually all of them have had to go through some kind of cost cutting, whether that is furloughing staff, whether that is uh, focusing down on absolute core spend. But equally, there is an opportunity for those companies that can get out there and can get ahead uh, whilst everybody else is kind of hunkering down, if you can be the one that's being proactive, there's a definite opportunity there at the moment. It strikes me that there's going to be a couple of a couple of profiles of startup that will feel like they have a shot at doing something right now. One is going to be a startup that can provide a solution very quickly uh, to a problem that a bigger set of organisations. I mean, it's a, it's going to be in the digital or, or broadcast space, I guess, primarily, but. Um, you know they they can they can provide a plug-in basically for one of those organizations and then the other would be of the type where you are seeing trends that are being accelerated by what's going on right now and maybe their use case has been pushed forward um in in a way that might have taken a couple of years or might have taken a, a bit of a leap of imagination before yeah i think so i think the there is definitely an opportunity for those companies that I think previously actually might have been somewhat um, castigated as, oh, that's a product, not a company. Um, and you, you used to see that a lot, especially uh, in terms of feedback from investors. Now I think actually there's quite a lot that's quite a good thing around that because it does fulfil the need of a you know, particular of a customer. And I think there's a lot of evidence, especially amongst the, the companies that we've got at Sportsloft, that... Um, Whereas there might have been a potential customer who was taking their time over something or who, you know, it's kind of a nice to have. All of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, you're solving this need for us now. Yeah, let's get this in. So rather than the, the sales cycle being three, six months, it's now more three days. And I think we're seeing a few of those. How, do, how are some of these companies able to then scale up at that kind of speed? With difficulty, I think is, a, is the honest answer. I mean, it's not as if... It, scaling up is an easy thing to suddenly just switch on i think a lot of it at the moment is uh people are trying to find where the opportunities are and trying to deliver those against those as fast as possible the benefit that a lot of the startups have is that they can be nimble you know you've got a situation where the ceo and a couple of people can take decisions and then within 20 minutes of that they they've already got the sort of the team moving and going in that direction you try doing that at a twenty thousand person organization you it it just can't move that quickly so i think there are a lot of actual benefits for some of the startups at the moment because they can be uh, so much more nimble so what, what what would your advice be for some of these startup you know um entrepreneurs and, and founders seeking investment in the in the current climate and how do you you know if you're advising them how do you 
encourage them to be proactive and to to get out there and, and get their names out there to raise capital? What kind of opportunities are on the table for them? Are there kind of virtual pitching sessions? And what what kind of role are you guys playing at Sportsloft in kind of adjusting to this and um, helping you know your 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 members and your your partners kind of yeah navigate through this time? So I was, so a couple of bits there. I think the the biggest advice or the the biggest thing that I, we always say is kind of the investor conversation just gets so much easier if you're getting runs on the board. So if you've got customers that are signing up, uh, that just makes the whole um, investor conversation uh, a much more fruitful one. It always kind of worries me when somebody says, oh, our focus is uh, raising money at the moment. Well, actually, it's an awful lot easier to raise money if you've got some clients on board. So your focus should also be getting on the clients on board. So it's not a, a either or uh, situation there. So I think the where they've got uh, potential customers and where they're showing at the moment that they can sign up customers, that they can get traction, even in this kind of environment, that just stands them in such great stead when having an investor conversation. So the, the big piece is always go and get those, those conversations going. In terms of the different stuff that's out there, there are an inordinate amount of virtual pitch competitions that are cropping up. It feels like virtually every single one that used to be happening in a, in a physical environment is now going into a virtual environment, which is great, but equally it does mean that there's an awful lot of noise out there and actually how does some of the startups genuinely stand out in a situation where everybody's shouting and everybody's pitching. And you know it's, it's pretty easy to do some kind of uh, pitch session um, online and get a whole bunch of people uh, to sign up for it the difficulty is what's what's the outcomes that come yeah. from that in terms of how we're helping um i think it, it was kind of weird i mean when we launched sportsloft we made this huge big deal that we had this uh uh venue in central london and we had this green sofa that all these people were going to come and sit on and you could go and <laughs> pitch to and we were taking pictures of these people coming sitting on this sofa and putting them up on linkedin and stuff like that that sofa's just getting a, probably a lot of dust on it at the moment. And I haven't been into that office space for 10 weeks now. So I was in the States just before lockdown happened. Uh, so yeah, it's been a while since there. So we basically just moved everything that we were doing uh, virtually. So all the office hours sessions that we were doing before, uh, we've now been doing over Zoom. The effect of that has actually been really good. Uh, you know, we're not requiring people to travel to come to a central location. Uh, we've got an incredibly international membership base. So we've got, uh, we're now, as of last week, we're up to eight members, which is fantastic. Um, we've got four, sorry, three in the UK, one in Israel and four in the US. So now actually there's no benefit of being in any particular location geographically because Zoom basically just negates the, the geographic element of it. So uh, that's actually worked out really well uh, for a lot of companies. And, you know, we've just been uh, planning ahead. In fact, probably uh, we did three office hours sessions last week, three the week before, probably busier in terms of those sort of conversations than we've been since we started. Uh, so it feels like we're running at about 100 miles an hour at the moment. For those companies that have a great product or a great idea, a great concept that is just not suitable for this moment in time, I mean, what are their options? Do they go to ground? Do they, um, you know, do they do they try and find investors who have a little bit more patience? Uh, do they rethink their idea and see, you know, if there's some other way that it, it might become uh, more, you know, applicable in more settings? So it's not just a physical product, or it's not just an in-venue product, or or what have you. What what would your approach be in that sort of circumstances? Well, I think one of the hardest pieces is that there are just so many unknowns at the moment at a macro level then i think it makes decision making really really hard for these companies so you know yes let's hope that uh live matches come back like the bundesliga games which is great but are we talking people coming back into stadiums in two months are we talking six months are we talking 18 months are we talking it's all dependent upon a, a vaccine no those there's so many uh unknowns there so if for example you're a uh, a gambling startup uh, at, at this particular moment in time there's very very little to gamble on 
But if all of a sudden loads of live matches start to come back, but nobody can actually really leave their living room uh, whilst these games are on, well, there's a huge market then for potential uh, people to be putting on money, gambling, because they want to make games that probably, they don't really care about that much, a little bit more interesting. So in the immediate one week, one month period, if you're that gambling startup, that's probably really quite a worry. In the three month period, you might actually have a really huge uh, bounce around that flip side being somebody that's heavily reliant upon people actually going into stadiums you know if you're thinking well actually it might be three four months before people come back into stadiums and i've got enough cash in the bank i can wait that out that's fine but how many are likely to have enough cash on the bank if that's going to take 12 18 months at that point you're probably going hmm how can i use my my technology in in quite a different way um and start to just maybe apply the platforms that you've built into either different markets or different experiences within the same market so i think a lot of it depends upon your personal view as to or your personal guess as to when things might come back to any semblance of normality i'm interested to hear your thoughts charlie on what the what the future holds here and from that macro level as you say there's there are so many unknowns for businesses large and small for sports properties large and small for literally everyone you know we have seen the the kind of global sports tech market on this upward trajectory for some time and i think uh there were some projections i i saw uh recently saying that over the next five years uh for example um the market could triple in value do you see that continuing to be the case what kind of impact do you think this will have is there going to be more of a demand or a need or investor interest in this sector going forward with the with the way that consumption has been changing and perhaps will will change in, in the kind of post-pandemic world? Or, you know, will there be some kind of, uh, you know, downturn or, or you know, plateauing of, of that kind of, yeah, that growth trend? I think there's a, there's a huge amount of dynamics and many of them probably quite contradictory, I think, that go into, into that. I think on the one hand, I, the... I do think capital will get more picky in terms of the companies that it aligns itself with. So those are companies that will have good management teams, have good potential, where the market size is really strong and appealing, where they are genuinely uh, bringing value uh, to the market. So I think the the byproduct of that, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, and in fact, actually, it's probably quite a good thing in some ways, is that some of the companies that may well have been a bit more, well, flaky, maybe weren't quite as good as some of the other ones, but they were managing to get funding, they probably will struggle to do so. So I think you will get less of the huge numbers of startups that are there, but I still think the the really good ones will still attract the capital. Um, so I think that will have a thinning out effect on the number of um, tech companies that, that we're seeing. I do think that there is going to be a fundamental change in the sports market itself. Uh, I think that's going to work in a couple of ways. One is I do think that uh, big finance is inevitably going to come into into play an awful lot more. And the one of the natures of big finance, whether you like it or not, is generally a professionalisation of what's going on. And though I think you'll find less and less patience for some of the, oh, it's okay, we've been doing it like this for 20 years, it'll be all right, or the the, the proverbial blazers making the decisions. Um, I think the need to serve customers well, to build fan bases, to uh, genuinely engage will will drive a lot more innovation that's there. So I think there will the actual demand from the industry will, will grow. And I think we've been seeing that a lot at Sportsoft at the moment. We've got... Um, you know, lots and lots of people from the sports organisations who are getting their head up and being, being like, well, I've no idea what's going to be happening 12, 18 months down the line, but I want to be aware of the technology that's going to come along. And so, yes, can we come and see those sorts of companies? So I think you're already starting to see people uh, getting their heads up around that. At one of the most macro levels, though, I think, and this is a, I think this is a really intriguing trend, is that I do think the way that business-to-business sales have been conducted across all industries is going to change dramatically. Um, So the idea of the boozy lunch in order to seal the deal or getting on an aeroplane in order to get to fly to, you know, 
seven, eight hours away uh, in order to get it over the line probably is going to happen an awful lot less. And, you know, the sports industry, when you're talking about sponsorship deals, when you're talking about broadcast right deals, is a very B2B orientated industry. And, you know, I think what we're going to start to find is that the way that people make decisions about what they do and the way that um, they decide what vendors they're going to work with and all these sorts of things is going to be a much more digital um, uh, interaction. So whether that's Zoom calls or indeed whether that's just about the quality of the supporting materials that people uh, supply, uh, because just having a great lunch with somebody is not going to be enough anymore. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. What's going to happen to the shape of um, of, of the investment side of things? I mean, you know, we, we see these big funds where, where um, you know, you're, you're getting kind of an aggregation of investment and then people are going in and, and picking up startups. You're also seeing incubators being set up within big companies, within big brands, where they are basically sourcing solutions to internal problems. Um, Adidas, I was with Adidas in Paris and uh, in January, just as an example, they have a, uh, they have a, uh, an incubator base there, which are going to be the more fruitful sources of, of investment for startups, or is it going to be kind of, uh, a bit more case by case than that? I think it will be inevitably case by case. I think there are some startups who have been quite wary of, uh, sort of corp- corporate strategic investment. Uh, often wondering about the motives of the investor and things like that. And I think, you know, the, I think a lot of those startups are starting to see that actually some of the, the strategic investors can be very good investors and can be very positive. So I think that will certainly help. There's a lot of uh, tech accelerator programs that are out there, um, you know, and there's and they're, they're, they're a mixed bag and a lot of them have different focuses and might operate at different uh, stages. I think where you will get to is a stage where uh, the very best ones will will do well and they will flourish because they're adding value to the startups and therefore they're adding you know they're fulfilling a proper role in the market. But the ones which are effectively being a an incubator or an accelerator program for the sake of being an incubator or an accelerator program because somebody wants a nice PR story to to talk about from a a football club or a, a brand or something, I think you'll see those fall by the wayside. I think you'll continue to see very savvy angels who know the business and the sector well, pick some really good companies. And I think you'll get, um, you'll still get the funds uh, coming in at that sort of late, later Series A, Series B stage, because they will be able to see that the, there are companies there uh, that can be built. Um, and, you know, I think whilst that appetite remains there, you will continue to see more funds coming into it. Have you, have you seen any um, particularly revealing trends across those three markets you mentioned, um, in particular the US, um, did you say Europe or the UK and Israel? Um, have, you, have you seen, you know, with the companies you work with, any challenges specific to individual markets or is everyone broadly in the in the same boat right now? I think the, the three markets, sort of the US, UK and Israel, are. I mention those because they're probably the ones where we spend most of our time and have most of our conversations, uh, both from a startup point of view, but also from an investor and a potential uh, customer point of view as well. I don't see a massive difference in the way that uh, coronavirus is impacting the markets in in those three i think the the differences that you that were there beforehand continue to remain uh but coronavirus apart from ravaging especially both the us and the uk on a on a broader level let alone just the sports startup market uh i don't think is is really the defining defining difference on it do you feel like the path to maturity is going to change at all for startups in the wake of this, particularly given um, the economic turbulence that, that we're going to experience maybe for quite some time? I think the, the idea of the sort of the path to maturity, by that do you mean as in the ability of companies to grow? or I think I think both. I think the ability of them to grow, but also, you know, does it change? Do, do, 
do entrepreneurs and founders become a bit more conservative about where they see a jumping off point and you know maybe a sale to a bigger organization or um where they see a, a consolidation of, of kind of core purposes um you know and a focus on, on a specific thing a specific service that they can run um rather than trying to kind of grow and grow and grow and because there may not be the same availability of of, uh, of easy capital or um you know of cheap money um, does that does that change the outlook for companies yeah i guess it does a little bit i think it might there might well be a tendency for certain founders to say actually that's a good offer on the table let's take it rather than to push that much further on because they're less confident about the broader macro environment uh, i could certainly see that um i do think there's an element of companies focusing down a little bit uh, i don't think we've really seen that kicking in yet but i think we will at a at a bigger uh, sort of tech company level uh i think the most obvious example was something like that was airbnb you know where they've actually cut back on things like the the tv studio that they were doing i mean did airbnb really need to have a tv studio capability probably not so actually you know come back to the core of what they are and again in some many respects i think that can be a very good thing I'd much rather that see companies that are genuinely world-class in what they do and are the best in their particular bit rather than somebody saying, well, you know, we're pretty good at loads of stuff that we're doing and they've just kind of expanded further out. So I, I really like the focus uh, piece of it. Um, and I could see that um, started to kick in quite a lot, quite a lot more. Yeah, I guess if we're, if we're talking about companies, businesses across the sports industry kind of retreating to their core competencies and things. Like, is there a danger that, uh, you know, with as it relates to sports tech and everything that entails and the startups that operate within that ecosystem, is there a danger that, you know, there won't be such a, um, a, gravita- a gravitation towards, you know, tech, these nice to have things that you can, you know, the bells and whistles that you put on your, your core offering whether that's in arena or broadcast or uh, around sponsorship offerings and activations and things is there a danger that um yeah this the, the sports ecosystem the teams the leagues the rights holders will ultimately just say look we we can actually ease up on some of this stuff let's just get back to basics and uh you know we don't we don't need to concern ourselves with that too much or you know as we always we've always well not always but certainly in recent years we've seen you know, the likes of the NBA, for example, kind of, they, they really do look to innovate from a position of strength. And, you know, they're not doing it out of desperation by any stretch. They're looking at different opportunities when they're in a very healthy financial position, when they're in a very healthy kind of business position generally, and the game is kind of going great guns. But is there a danger that one, as soon as you flip that on its head and suddenly there's real anxiety across the board, that ultimately startups and the sports tech community suffers? Is there a danger? Yes, uh, I guess there is. How real is uh, that? Is that danger? I think it depends a huge amount on the um, on the attitude of the industry. I mean, and I think of it, and by that I mean the individuals who are taking the decisions as to where they focus and what they think is important. So, my personal argument would be that having a genuine understanding of your customer, having putting really great engagement opportunities in front of your fans, doing your best to build your fan bases isn't a nice to have. It's what you need to be doing anyway. And the way that you do that is through some of the technologies that are coming down the pipe. And that may be technologies from startups or it might be technologies from bigger companies as well. But to pull back from that sort of more, how do I build my fan base? How do I uh engaging my my fans i think to pull back from that would be terrible i think the way that you would increasingly do those things is via technology Um, and it's and at that point it's not technology for technology's sake it's technology because it's adding something to what you're trying to achieve so i think to pull back from that would be really really would be a great shame and i don't think people will i think the the horse is bolted and there's too many people within the industry who realize the the importance of uh the role that some of the technology can play I think the other part of it, you highlighted the NBA, and I think it's a really good one to pick on. You know, the organisations that are 
uh, being seen to be innovative, that are going and doing stuff, that are engaging their fans, are the ones that will do better. And, you know, the NBA are going coming at it from a position of strength, but if they keep doing stuff and other ones pull back, you'll just see the NBA get further ahead. Um, again, not in technology, but in the, the things like in knowing their fan bases and engaging with their fans. And that's why they'll increasingly reap the rewards of it. And so just to finish off, I mean, what role do startups play in that environment and, and how much of that kind of innovation gets brought in-house when, you, when, you're, you know, when we're coming back and potentially coming back in, in more challenging times? I mean, I think startups, as indeed larger uh, tech companies, have, uh, have a very real role to play. Of course, I'd say that, but um, I, I generally think that. The, the reality is that if you're sat at the right side and you're looking around the technologies that you might use, you know, the, the sort of uh, technologies that you might use now are going to be different from the ones that you need that you need to be aware of for 12 to 18 months down the line. And so being aware of some of those technologies is very important. But equally, there's a lot of the startups can deliver against something in the here and now. So having a really good mix uh, of those two things, I think, will be uh, really important going forward. And I think the opportunity for startups to bring stuff that is new, that is different, that actually maybe some of the more established companies might find a little bit, uh, you know, risky to go and do, uh, the startups can go and do that. And I think that's uh, that prompts and pushes the industry uh, really well. As to how much of it being gets brought in-house, I mean, the reality is that in most cases, a football club or a league is still at heart a football club or a league. It doesn't necessarily have 30, 40 developers um, sat there. Some of them will, but not, not that many. So, you know, you look at a lot of the organisations, they are going to be looking to external third parties to really push the agenda and come up with great ideas. And I think one of the things that I always see that's so encouraging is when, you know, we sit down with uh, somebody for, say, a team or a league who's coming to meet the startups at Sportsloft, and we always say, you know, what advice would you would you give them? And when you hear things like, you know, don't be afraid to challenge us just because we've been doing like this doesn't mean that it's the right way. Tell us something that might be new. And those, I don't think, are platitudes. I think they genuinely mean it. And I think that's a really encouraging uh, uh, approach that a lot of these organisations are increasingly taking. I just wanted to add in one one final point, uh, kind of, you know, on a, on a positive note, really. But um, interested to know, Charlie, who, who's impressed you at this at this time over the last eight to, to ten weeks in terms of you know who's the who's the zoom of the of the sports tech in, uh, ecosystem? <laughs> who's who's been able to take advantage of this and and make really really meaningful kind of inroads into the into the marketplace and has probably capitalised where others haven't. I'm going to pick on a few companies that uh, we got at Sportsloft. I think inevitably in my my response to that because they're the ones that I know best. <laughs> but if you look at somebody like Spoke, who've done really well around the vir- their virtual sort of commentating uh, broadcasting capabilities, I think that's been They've capitalised on things really well. If you look at somebody like uh, Satisfy, there's some of the conversations that they're having in terms of how they use their AI conversational capabilities. In many respects, were probably things that they wanted to do 12 months down the line, but they've been superb in bringing that forward in terms of their their thinking. And then you've got somebody like Fivo, uh, for example, which is um, a fantastic uh, platform for effectively social selling of uh, of tickets. They were able to repurpose their platform and actually shift 600,000 face masks, which is a, a brilliant thing to do in the current environment, but also shows how their technology can be used in, in lots of different ways. And, you know, then you've got other companies, so Formalytics, uh, who, are, who were just about to kick off into a fundraising round their ability to go and drive that through in such, you know, in what is a challenging environment, no matter how many positives people put around it, it's still a challenging environment, that they're out doing that and getting great conversations, I think is real testament to the, some of the, the calibre of some of the the startups that are out there. And a lot of that comes down to people. You know, I do think the ones that are looking at it and going, right, how do we push it on? How do we take advantage of the positives that we've got are going to be in a much stronger position than anybody who's sat there going, 
oh, woe is me, um, isn't this terrible? And basically sat there licking their wounds because the the ones who have been much more positive about it are the ones who are much more likely to get to a great result in the end term. All right. Well, we're going to hear what it's been like to be a startup in the sports tech sector uh, after the break. Michael Long, you spoke to Tal Brown, who's the chief executive and founder of Zone 7, uh, who are the creators of a data-driven artificial intelligence system uh, to help improve athlete performance. That will be coming up just after this. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with a hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. Tal Brown, Chief Executive and Founder of Zone 7. Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hope you're well. How are you doing? Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure. I'm doing well. I'm in uh, California, so under lockdown still, but uh, spirits are high and, uh, and uh, we're just glad to be healthy. Good, good. Yes, absolutely. It's the most important thing at this time. How's, uh, how's the current situation there and uh, how, how, have you been, how have you been faring over the last, what is it, couple, couple of months since we entered lockdown? Yeah, I think this is the eighth or ninth week of the lockdown. It hasn't changed much in terms of the uh, restrictions, but uh, the Bay Area is relatively um, spacious and there's uh, uh, you know, backyards you can run in for kids, so relatively okay. Um, luckily, our team, our clients, and our families, of course, are, have all been safe. Good stuff. Good stuff. Before we get into the work that you do uh, with your with your teams, um, and you know how the how the COVID nineteen uh, crisis has uh, has impacted Zone Seven specifically, um, perhaps we should first um, go go into uh, a bit about the, the company history and the, and the background of Zone Seven. You know, when when were you founded? What what is your um, AI-powered products that you you've brought to market, and um, who are you currently working with? So Zone Seven is a AI startup that was founded in Israel about three years ago, um, and the premise of the company is that the methods to collect data about what our players are doing are there, and the methods to store that data and to visualize it, uh, chart it, are also there. Um, but uh, we found that there's a gap in that the need to decipher this data to find the breadcrumbs and what they're leading to in terms of human performance are, are, are not in the market yet. So Zone 7 is a set of deep learning algorithms that live in the cloud, that process the data that we have about our players. And we use that data to find patterns across thousands and thousands of uh, players and many, many teams. And we look for patterns that have lead, led players either to be injured or to be at their peak. And these patterns are then used to uh, and applied in a live environment. So we help process data in real time and detect these patterns, understanding if players are heading towards injury or heading towards their peak. And we also provide suggestions on how to change that route and to optimize for whatever the client wants to optimize for, um, usually a combination of reducing injuries and uh, keeping players at their peak for longer. So, who are your typical clients? Who who have you been working with in those in these early years? I know you work with um, some major organisations on both sides of the Atlantic. Are you able to go into um, yeah a couple of case studies in terms of uh, you know um, who you're working with and how you're working with them? Yeah, yeah. So it's been it's been a pretty intense journey. We when we started, we had a few uh, early customers in Israel, and uh, our first investor was Jordi Cruyff, who helped us uh, meet some teams in Europe. And the first team we met was uh, in Europe was Getafe from La Liga. And they've been an early adopter of ours since uh, coming up from second division three years ago. And for these three years, they've had the lowest injury rates in La Liga. And, um, and tactically, they've played also very well. So, you know, they've got maybe a tenth of the player salary budget of the bigger clubs in La Liga, but they've been able to, you know, qualify for Europa Cup and do extremely well. I think they finished fifth last last year. So, that's, uh, that's the kind of client that we work with. It's uh, usually a professional football club, although we are active in the North America and other sports like baseball and hockey and, and American football. And these clubs have invested in technology to 
create or quantify data. So they've got the wearable devices, the GPS trackers. Some of them have different ways to quantify force and flexibility of the athletes' uh, uh, bodies. And that data is it's very hard to contextualize it. It requires uh, an operator, a human sports scientist, to look at various charts every day multiplied by 25, 30 players to make decisions on who's at risk or who needs more help. And, um, and by analyzing data from almost 50 football clients that we've worked with, uh, we're able to make that process quite more accurate and, 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 and faster. So we've got clients like Getafe in La Liga, uh, Bundesliga, UK uh, first and second uh, leagues, uh, Serie A and Serie B. Um, we've got quite a few customers in the MLS uh, league as well. So overall, we've analyzed over over a million football sessions. Uh, by session, I mean a training session or a game. And that analysis includes, you know, the, the wearables and the medical records and all that. So um, we have a very, very large asset of data driving our algorithms, which is very unique in this industry because most teams and most products will focus on the data available to one client. Yeah, it's interesting to know what the what the decision-making process is within teams when it comes to working with Zone 7 or deciding to work with Zone 7. Obviously, uh, as you say, you're bringing a kind of degree of, of or, you know, a very scientific empirical approach to what is traditionally a, has been perhaps in years gone by the art of monitoring player yes. health, readiness to, to play and injury risk and things like that. Um, what's the what's the key part of your of your cell or your or your pitch and ultimately what are you enabling your your partners to do that they couldn't do themselves albeit that they've grown increasingly sophisticated as you said in, in terms of quantifying and collecting data yeah. and yeah. interpreting it what are, what are you enabling them to do above and beyond their internal capabilities yeah so, so the trend in the industry is working in our favor um, one is the first part of that trend is the understanding that injuries are key to the performance, financial and tactical of, a, of an organization is, is, is there. Um, you know, you look at the, the Leicester winning the league a few years back, they had dramatically less, I think it was a fourth of the injuries of the league on average, something, something like that. So it's not a guarantee, you know, lower injury rates is not a guarantee for winning, but it's, it's a key component of teams that do well. Um, especially, I would say, the underdog teams or the Cinderella stories like a Getafe. Um, so that's part of the trend. The other trend is the data is there. All the football clubs in Europe, you know, have already bought data or bought products that collect the data. And, and now, a few years down the line, they're realizing, oh, there's more we can do with this data. Uh, and we still need to address the injury issue because, to be fair, most of the leagues, if you look at overall statistics are showing are not showing a decline in injury rates. So the problem remains unsolved. And so zone seven, the conversation about zone seven starts there. It starts with uh, the success stories we've had with Getafe and some other clients. And it's a way for us to, to share that technology with a larger uh, group of teams. Now, inside the team, the decision-making process is correct. There is the art of monitoring and uh, adjusting players, but more and more today, that art relies on science and on data. So today, the, the artists, the operators look at data. They've got the data visually in front of them. So that's a great step forward. And what we offer is a way to, first of all, do it a little bit faster because reviewing five or 10 charts a day times 20 players is a very time consuming thing. Uh, could take a few hours every morning, um, 9 to 10, 9 to 11 a.m. before players start training to, to review that data is, is what a lot of clients do. And the, th the second thing is the, the ability to draw conclusions from the data relies on the operator's experience and skill set and time. And so by drawing conclusions or recommendations from a huge data set of incidents that have occurred in the past is something that an, an individual just can't do. So the, the, the machine learning or the machine can learn from, in our case, 10,000 injuries, whereas, you know, for a single person or a single organization, you know, they've never seen so many injuries or, or incidents before. So that's that's another way where we are helpful. So we're able to provide more accuracy and, and more time efficiency 
in that decision-making process. But ultimately, it's the same process because Zone 7 does not replace a human expert who speaks to players, who speaks to coaches, who navigates the human culture. So it's it's more of a, a supporting system. So think about a pilot. We, we you know we, we give pilots a very accurate GPS system, but we still need a pilot to navigate through a storm. Mm-hmm. We just you know we just eliminate the need to look at the stars and figure out where you know where east and west are. We we, we have a technology to do that, but we still need that expert manning the helms. Absolutely. So it's a it's a kind of fusion between man and machine ultimately to fueling this decision-making process. Yeah, I'm interested to know, uh, you know, how you're how you're faring, how you're how you're coping at this particular time. Obviously, the the COVID nineteen pandemic has kind of ground the sports industry as a whole uh, to a halt. You've got teams uh, attempting to to continue training in in some capacity, in some way, whether that's on an individual basis or uh, you know a limited uh, kind of group training sessions and things. Obviously. Business has been hugely disrupted in that respect. There are no games currently taking place in most leagues. What what kind of access have you uh, been afforded, really, to your to your partners? How are you, how are you working with them? Are you doing more on a remote basis now? Are you are you still there on the, on the ground working with them? How how does that how does that dynamic work? You know, and how does that compare to how you would normally operate? So I think. We've seen this as uh, a combination of uh, slowing us down, but also an opportunity. Um, clearly, for a startup in the business of selling software, this is not an extremely friendly time um, mm-hmm. to sign new deals. But we've done a few things to, to be helpful to our clients. So the first thing is we've allowed them to monitor athletes at home. So we, we opened up our platform to also track uh, personal devices like Apple and Garmin. So, and we, we provided our clients with a free capability to track what players are doing at home, um, runs or home workouts or whatever. So centrally managing that information for them. And we've, we've, we've done that at no cost. So that was one thing that we did, which, uh, which got some very, very nice support from our clients. The other thing is every single league is now facing unprecedented congestion. So more games per week or per month than ever before over a longer period of time. And as they're facing this congestion, the existing methods of how to plan workload on a weekly basis for a weekly game need adjustment. And that's where we've been able to help as well. By tapping into our data, we've been able to put together some algorithms specifically for the congested period, which cover the preseason or the shorter preseason and also the congested periods. So we've been working with our clients to create what we call the resiliency reports that help classify athletes into groups of you know, who's who's more resilient to two, three games a week and who's less and help help them make these decisions in a more of a scientific way, in a consistent way. Um, and the, the last thing is, you know, the last few weeks, we've seen five, six new clients approach us asking us for help, asking us to partner in anticipation of this congestion. So it's also created an opportunity for a brand like Zone 7 to you know, demonstrate we can be helpful. Um, so just new clients, you know, for surprisingly in Bundesliga and in the UK and Syria. Uh, um, and that's, that's a very positive, uh, positive and, um, experience for us. This is the sports pro podcast. So what are those, um, those reports that you've been conducting during, during the shutdown? What, what have you learned, uh, specifically from the, from this time? Um, by you know, during this time of monitoring athletes and how they're perhaps how they're training uh, whilst in lockdown or what you know in self isolation in quarantine, um, have there been any particularly surprising trends in terms of how <laughs> athletes have gone about their day to day business? So we looked at a report that finds the relationship between the number of games you play in a thirty day period and your risk and. I mean, no surprise, if you're playing more games, you're at more injury risk. But where, is, where does that graph jump out? At what point does it become you know, dangerous or more dangerous to overload your players with seven, eight, nine games a week? And so understanding that sweet spot is something that clubs can use to better manage the time. So we have one report that we did um, about that. What's the sweet spot or what's the point where the, industry, the injury risk rises dramatically? It's around the seven to eight games per 30-day period. And this is on our blog um, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an analysis that you, where we can share. And the other thing is we're also sharing a report about 
how preseason length or duration affects injury risk in the first half of the season. So we hope this can be used by leagues for the next season to look at, you know, how, well, again, no surprise, shorter preseasons lead to more uh, injury risk, but what's that sweet spot? How do we manage that trade-off? So it's not about surprises. It's about being able to manage that trade-off. Yeah, you, you spoke about the, the business opportunity for, for Zone 7 here. Presumably that's a natural follow-on, as you say there, that, that, that opportunity to work with leagues in future and, and governing bodies in terms of not only assessing season length and, and the, the, you know, the, the load and the stress that that puts on, on players and, and teams more generally, but uh, things like calendar congestion and how you compose um, scheduling, you know, yeah, how you approach scheduling to ensure that, you know, risk of injury is minimized and things from a, from a, from a league level, not just a team and athlete. Yes. The, the opportunities for zone seven are in several dimensions. I mean, when you look at the, the benefits of less injuries, then there's multiple stakeholders that care about having less injuries. There's the, the teams themselves, there's the players themselves, the agents, um, the leagues, because ultimately the best players playing more is, uh, is good for the entire league, the sponsors and also the insurance uh, providers. Mm-hmm. So over time, we're seeing opportunities to um, in, in interact with all these stakeholders on spreading or sharing the, the benefits of uh, less injuries. I mean, we actually have some clubs asking us to, to talk to their sponsors, for the sponsors to be part of this process as well, because clearly this is tied with the sports performance uh, as well and, 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 and the sponsorship value. Uh, but ultimately, ultimately, making decisions about player health is a, is a very intimate process in a club. So, you know, this is a, this, it's delicate, but again, the, the benefits of healthier, longer, or healthier and longer careers for top athletes is something that impacts a wide ecosystem of, uh, of the football community. And so more generally, what's the outlook for you as a, you know, as a startup founder operating in this current climate? Um, you know, when you look at when you're trying to business plan for the coming months and, and years ahead, so much uncertainty uh, going on. I don't know what kind of funding stage you're in, or whether you're you know, actively seeking funding or funding rounds in due course to raise capital of some kind. What's the, you know, how how do you make sense of all of this and and kind of assess where new opportunities are and perhaps how you, um, you know, if you need to tear up the script ultimately and uh, tear <laughs> up any plans that you perhaps had a couple of months ago and, and rethink everything. What what's been your where's your head at? With that? It's a great question. It's it's it, this is this is what is uh, is uh, occupying my mind uh, twenty four hours a day. Uh, we've we've been on a on a Silicon Valley trajectory path. So our investors, for the most part, are Silicon Valley venture funds. So and and this is also why I've relocated to California. But on the other hand, we've also partnered with uh, sports insiders, and so the new currency is lean. If you can, you know, being lean is an extremely powerful asset right now, and we are lean. Uh, um, we were pretty lean before, and we're even leaner now. Um, we've also, uh, you know, some sort of a combination of luck and just good karma. We just before COVID, we partnered with multiple sports insiders as uh, as angel investors, following the venture capital uh, fundraise. So, people with the industry, um, players, agents, uh, Italian team owners, uh, ex executives from top of top leagues. This has all been happening for us just before COVID. So we we're able to get a little bit more um, uh, incredibly productive partnerships going on in the investment front. So that's a that was a very good kind of stroke of uh, stroke of luck for us. So we're not tearing up the script, but we you know being in Silicon Valley, we've always known that sports for us is a first market out of uh, several that we'd like to do. And so this process, this COVID has been accelerating this process. So we're still extremely active in, in football and in North American sports, and I've seen great traction, but we've also just deployed a first project outside or two projects outside of sports. One of them is in the military uh, with special forces injuries. So kind of like special forces operators as uh, triathletes and re- reducing injury rates for them using the very similar technology. And the other one is looking at fatigue uh, for medical personnel. So people working at ERs treating COVID patients are now overworked. They're also an extremely scarce resource. And we're using Zone 7 in collaboration with Garmin uh, to track 
things like heart rate and uh, oxygen saturation and sleep and put together a model of uh, reducing fatigue for these individuals. Highly trained, highly replaceable, and highly important members of the society right now. And so COVID has seen us uh, begin early adopter programs in new markets, which is, uh, which is great for the company. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating stuff, actually. It's something that I certainly hadn't, hadn't considered, but, uh, you know, the, it's a real, um, yeah, uh, a, a new proof of concept, ultimately, I guess, a, a validation of your product to be able to branch out into other areas, as you say, whether it's military or, or healthcare at a time like this and really kind of um, see the bigger picture and see how your platform can be applied in other walks of life uh, beyond the sports and sports tech kind of ecosystem. It's, um, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And just, just one final question Tal, uh, before I let you go and get back to it. Um, interesting that you make the point there about uh, obviously relocating the business to be um, uh, close to Silicon Valley or within Silicon Valley. Um, I, interested to know what, what value there will be um, in future or you think there will be in future of that kind of geographical proximity or physical proximity to sports tech hubs or technology hubs, if you like. I think one of the um, things we've seen from from speaking to various people across the industry in various sectors is that you know, the the ways of doing, the old ways of doing business have had to kind of change. Perhaps more things will be done virtually. There won't be the the um, the extent of travel and business travel and things that that go with ultimately doing business you know, face-to-face meetings and things like that, perhaps when there won't be so many of those in future. What are, you, what are your thoughts? Um, obviously, they, there is still value in being in being close to the community that you you serve and you operate within physically. But do you see there being a, a real shift in, in the mindset of how um, sports tech startups operate in this new normal, quote-unquote, that we, that we will soon find ourselves in? Yeah, I think, I think that um, in general, clients who are used to conducting business face-to-face will have to get used to more travel and more remote work. Uh, It's extremely difficult in football because, especially for a company like ours, because we're dealing with the doctors and the coaches and the analysts, and they are very much uh, pitch-driven. You know, they're, they're aligned with the player game schedule, so it's tough, but the industry will need to adapt there. And, and to a certain extent, investors as well. But, but I do think that being close to your market, clients and investors is paramount. And for me, um, a sports tech company in Tel Aviv is something, it's definitely doable, especially in other areas of technology, but Israel isn't yet a strong hub for sports tech in the sense of, you know, almost very few clients you can partner with as early adopters, very few investors there who are early stage sports tech investors. So it made sense. And it really was a choice for me between London and, and, uh, and the Bay Area. So I'm a very strong believer that being close to your market, especially in early stage, is paramount, absolute paramount. Uh, You know, it's strange for us because a lot of our key clients are still European uh, elite football clubs. But um, but being here and being close to the investment partners has been fundamental to our success. Uh, I think early stage investment is still a very local state of mind thing. You know, people want to feel and get to know you and they, they also drive comfort from knowing you're operating in the, in the same business environment, whether you're spending time on Zoom or over coffee. Absolutely. Well, Tal, let's, um, let's leave it there. But thank you again for your time and all the best for what, whatever the future holds. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for this opportunity. And I wish uh, our audience uh, a healthy and safe couple of weeks. Join the conversation with the Sports Pro community. Follow us on Twitter at Sports Pro. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media. And connect to Sports Pro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. Sports Pro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. All right, that'll do it for another Sports Pro podcast. Thank you very much to Tal Brown from Zone 7 uh, for his time there. Thank you to Charlie Greenwood. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, and to Michael Long. The, for the pair of you, I mean, I know you collaborated before on uh, Sports Pro's 20 ideas to invest in now at, at the start of the year um i'd be intrigued to know how many of those uh, are gonna have had their chances uh improved or otherwise by uh by recent events and where uh who, who has had their case strengthened um by the sudden shutdown or the sudden kind of dispersal of of, uh, of fan groups i suppose um 
time will tell on that one. Um, but certainly a space that's going to be worth watching. We are coming to the end of this run of Sports Pro Podcast where we're looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the industry. And we're beginning, Mike, to focus on the exit or the, the very, very start of uh, the exit from lockdown next week. Yeah, not not to rehash that word again that uh, Charlie used at the top of the uh, the show, pivot, but we are now pivoting um, towards, uh, yeah, looking at, looking ahead to kind of sports long-term uh, recovery, what the outlook uh, is or could be um, for various sectors and, and uh, you know, rethinking or perhaps reassessing some of those traditional uh, revenue streams for the sports industry across broadcasting and sponsorship in the in arena um, experience. We'll be looking at, you know, the potential for, uh, for governance and funding reform and things like that. I think it's uh, the, there's going to be some speculation and some uh, hypothetical conversations for sure. But I think it's um, certainly an interesting time to have a look ahead and see what the the post pandemic world looks like. Well, we'll be getting back on the field, so to speak, uh, next week. We do also have Sports Pro Podcast Extra running alongside that. Um, there's going to be a slight change as well, scheduling-wise. It's actually a bank holiday in the UK again on Monday. We've, we've really been able to make the most of them, but that means that we're pushing Sports Pro Podcast Extra to Tuesday, and we're now going to be pushing the Sports Pro Podcast to Thursday from next week, but you will still be getting uh, both of those uh, for the foreseeable future, at least. Anyway, thank you very much, guys, and thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with you again very soon. Bye-bye. The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon. 